Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined today by Catherine Young, Investment Director with Fidelity International, who is based in Hong Kong. As overall growth in China has slowed, what is on the horizon? What should investors brace for over the next few months? And how can they make the most of their investments in the world's second largest economy? Catherine provides her on-the-ground perspectives today with host Pamela Ritchie, unpacking several topics, including the property market in China, the healthcare sector, policy changes, and the country's zero-COVID policy, which has led to various lockdowns as well as entertainment and leisure closed. This podcast was recorded on August 15th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Catherine, great to see you. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pamela. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's always nice to see you. Very happy to to get caught up with you. And I wonder if we could, in fact, get caught up on something that we've spoken about perhaps over the years, really, the past couple of years, the policy of economic prosperity, sort of the goals where China's policy is trying to take it, and and the term itself, if you could just break it down, and then we can perhaps go through some of the data. Sure. So in terms of a key area of focus for the senior government officials is what we call common prosperity. And within common prosperity, this was a big topic last year in particular, is focusing on households and and their budget and what they need to spend in terms of three key areas. So property, healthcare and education. So last year, we saw a lot of regulatory reforms relating to online education and basically students and family being able to access education and platforms. Property remains the backbone of the Chinese economy. And, uh, you know, we are still seeing a lot of risk, Pamela, in the property sector itself. You know, already today, we saw some weaker data in terms of property sales down about 29%. So still very cautious on this sector. Yes. Well, so let's follow up on that, if that's okay. Because as you say, there's been containment. We've seen that there's been a, a great effort to make sure that what has gone on in the property market in China has not sort of spread to other parts of the globe. And and um, there's there's been, it looks like a successful effort to sort of manage that. What more is there to be done ultimately? So the situation is whilst we've seen this long-term growth set in terms of urbanization, growth of the middle class, the need for property, what's also happened over the years is that China has created somewhat of a property bubble. In fact, if we look at the US property bubble in 2006, 2007, it equates to around six, six and a half percent of GDP. Last year, the same situation in China was close to 20% of Chinese GDP. So as a result, um, what we are expecting, and you know, again, some of these companies, these property developers have really been flourishing in this demand, but at the same time, some of their balance sheets and management of their balance sheets are, have been quite questionable. And you know, even as an investment team, we were picking up 
on some of these areas in terms of mismanagement. So whilst it seems a bit harsh, we're probably going to see consolidation in the market. We're likely to see defaults, albeit managed defaults. And essentially, the bigger players are going to get bigger in terms of the, the well-managed property developing companies. Very interesting. And, and is there sort of an effort to land or, or maybe you could bring us up to date on the, on the status of and the bank sort of holding some of the assets that are just not working? I mean, the, there, there are larger institutions where things have been, again, kind of ring-fenced for the greater good, you might say, for the rest of the economy. Is, is there any update on sort of how that is working, to what extent that is working? So in terms of what we're seeing in the property sector itself, think of it as like a flight to safety. Right. So if we take, for example, 2021 pre-sales, like in terms of the land sales, state-owned enterprises, or what we call them as SOEs, accounted for about 26%. Last year, this pre-sales land that figure jumped up to, or sorry, I should say this year, year today in 2022, up to 75%. So if you think about it, if you are, um, even non-investment-wise, if you're a citizen in China, and you know we're now seeing this in terms of, of the, I don't know whether it's been in your press or commentaries being, being shared over in Canada about people not paying their mortgages. And it's not because right. they don't have the money to pay their mortgages. Right. It's, it's like a, a, a form of protest. So you put a mortgage down on a, an apartment that hasn't yet been completed and you're still not getting this apartment. So we have seen that, and this is really flagging the urgency towards the government in terms of trying to rectify the situation. So again, the state-owned enterprises are likely to benefit, but in the interim, going back to the common prosperity focus, we need to ensure, the government needs to ensure that these citizens are indeed receiving the apartments that they have bought, and that also the pricing of these apartments doesn't go through the roof, although, as I said, you know, the property data has been significantly weaker of late. There's been a call to some regional banks, to other banks, to, to sort of get involved, to help this overall sort of landing of this. Is that fair? Yes. And I think also what we've seen since 2021, you know, a lot of people focusing on the regulatory environment last year. But we have seen a bit of an economic, well, not even a bit, we have seen an economic slowdown in China. You know, sentiment-wise, it was driven by these re regulatory reforms we've seen, especially in the internet sector, the education sector, to a degree, the healthcare sector. And again, it's important to, to sort of differentiate the reforms that are, are beneficial for citizens versus how they impact the investment of these companies, all these industries. And so in general, China is very different to the rest of the world in terms of its easing bias, but it's almost like the market wants to see more. So it's, it's interesting, the other, and you've mentioned it there, the, the other sort of piece of, of common prosperity, um, education, but also healthcare. I'm, I'm curious about healthcare. I mean, it, it goes to the COVID zero policy. It goes to ultimately the innovation within this sector and the focus on it for policy and investors. What, what do you make of where healthcare is, where it's going, how good an investment it is ultimately? You know, yeah, you know, again, it's very interesting because when you look, and I, I think we've spoken about in the past in terms of what citizens have access to and what they don't have access to. So we were seeing, you know, incredibly rich gross margins by some of the pharmaceutical companies, like staggering gross margins for just merely selling generics. And so there was a crackdown and we have seen pricing pressure for the companies. And this has been going on for quite some time in terms of really focusing on the prices of, of different pharmaceuticals. So that has also sort of put a bit of a ceiling on some of these healthcare names, but at the same time, it's good for the citizens. 
the more innovative biotech companies that are still doing well. In fact, uh, some of or a few of the companies that we've spoken to have just released their second quarter results. So, you know, again, if you have that market lead, that research and development capability, you'd be managing your balance sheet well, there's still some very attractive names because they're still underpinned by government support in terms of innovation. Any mRNA? I'm sure there's trials going on. Is there anything coming to the fore? There are lots, Pamela, but alongside property, the, the COVID policy and the zero COVID policy remains, remains a risk for China. We've seen some tweaks admittedly, in both Hong Kong policy as well as, as China-related policy. Uh, but you, you will often see these, you know, short, sharp lockdowns or prolonged lockdowns. And it's quite interesting how local governments have tweaked their policies. You're seeing a lot more mass testing, so really to try and contain the outbreak in a given city. And there were like 2,000 or so cases reported uh, just today or yesterday. But in terms of, you know, to give you an example, a city will say you can continue to manufacture and produce but all forms of entertainment and leisure are closed. So this is really putting a drag on sentiment. And it's, you know, again, along with the property data we had today, we also had exports, which was actually, you know, a relatively attractive number. Across all levels, you you saw numbers come in below estimates and including consumer confidence. So this, this sentiment gauge with consumption is something we really do need to focus on because there has been a sharp drop. And there's so many things in that that I'd like to ask you. On, on the export front, I mean, there's the whole world is struggling right now, actually, apart from sort of North America on some level, and, and maybe ultimately North America is already in a recession. It's hard to know. But what ultimately does that sort of forecast for the export story for China? I mean, you know, if, if Europe goes right into a recession, are there any thoughts of sort of how we look out to that a, a few months out? Yeah, well, China's still such a big exporter, still such a big manufacturer. And so even when the Shanghai knee or Shanghai lifted its restriction for month production data, whether it was in autos or other segments, really, you know, um, strongly rise. Okay. So the issue is that the capabilities there, but when you get a lack of movement of people, nothing gets produced. But that, that's why, again, you're seeing, starting to see these tweaks to policy where production is still occurring. And so it's really the, the domestic consumption side, which, which needs to be monitored closely. So, you know, again, as the rest of the world picks up and, and there's more demand, uh, China, you know, stands to benefit from an exporter's perspective. Right, but perhaps the domestic story still needs some clarification and that's, that's an area to look. I mean, the idea, so, so monetary policy is happening. There's a recognition that growth perhaps needs some help. Uh, we saw a small cut, in fact, interest rate cut. It didn't seem to be very large and you sort of wonder, I wonder if you can put that in perspective. Is that a signal to, to something else or a willingness for for more help ultimately? It was um, it was a little bit unexpected, the cut that we saw today. It was only 10 basis points, but the conundrum that the PBOC or the central bank finds itself in is that as you see the Federal Reserve and other central banks aggressively tighten rates, they're in a position to ease, but if they ease too much, then the interest rate differential will widen, right. which has a knock-on effect in terms of currency and capital flows. So they're very cognizant of that. There's more of a focus, it appears, on the fiscal side of things, so new bond issuance. So even looking, and there's a quota at bringing some of next year's quota to this year. That fixed asset investment spending, again, has a lot more room on the upside. So you know, we've spoken about in the past, 5G networks, the, the building of, of, of sort of more connecting cities, et cetera. So not just spending for the sake of spending, but really targeting. Right. Yeah, 
But the problem with that again, Pamela, is when you do see these lockdowns, you haven't seen, I mean, people are confined to their apartments or their homes. So even if you were trying to increase infrastructure spending, no one, the workers aren't there to do the infrastructure spending. And I think that's, again, this is why we're seeing a bit of a tweak policy, but it's very unlikely that you'll see a 180 degree turn in terms of just opening up the borders, et cetera. So if we go a bit further towards the Congress itself, um, what, again, what, what do you think investors need to know about this? It, it is going to be quite a moment. Ultimately, what are some of the strands that you look at as, as we sort of get closer to this stage? You know, again, it's uh, we're seeing a reshuffle of, of the senior politicians or governments, um, ex uh, Xi Jinping himself. So it will be about the policy direction going forward, what their focus is. I mean, you know, it's clear this common prosperity policy is is here with us over a long term environmental. But the issue is that whilst the employment data, in fact, today was OK, there was uh, a sharp increase in the unemployment rate to just shy of 20 percent with the 16 to 24 year olds and so new graduates. I mean, that's the young generation. You've got to think, how, how are they going to then spend on some level the consumption story? Exactly. And so this is, I mean, this is an area that Premier Li Keqiang has actually been focusing on for quite some months. So I think they know the problems are there and they're in a position to add stimulus, whether again, it's more fiscally versus monetary given that where the rest of the world is. But you just get the sense that people were expecting more, the market was expecting more, more hasn't come through. So will we not, will we just sort of plateau out for a while before the Congress itself occurs? So let's be honest with you, Pamela, you know I tend to be quite bullish on China, but it is a very complicated scenario that we do find ourselves in, combined with how the rest of the world looks as well. Right. So right. we could argue that a lot of it is priced in and a lot of the negative news has been priced in. Uh, you know, we could talk about the individual stocks, which are, are still growing in terms of their earnings and their market share. But overall sentiment still remains relatively negative. So, I mean, let, let's talk about either of the individual stocks, but or, or even just the sector. So we know, ultimately, as you mentioned, some of the, the focus of policy on particular sectors last year. So so within tech, but then ultimately education, healthcare. This is the worry of investors sometimes, right? That the, the policy will come in and it, they'll be somewhat blindsided by by how that comes through. Again, sort of just looking a little bit for tea leaves, but ultimately to the expertise of your team of how they see policy going forward. I guess I guess healthcare. Obviously, we spoke about some of the issues within housing, but where to go now? Is it is to go back to areas of the market that were really sold off and are looking therefore quite cheap? Uh, yes, but also that there's sort of those very well-loved names, like the internet-related names, e-commerce names. The issue is that there's so much competitive intensity. So it's great for consumers to have choice and, and, and different brands they can use. But it's very hard to now maintain that market share. And the regulatory environment did teach us that, you know, it's not appropriate to be a monopoly or a du duopoly in a, a given industry. So that's a little bit tricky. And in terms of there are opportunities across all industries, in fact, even when you look at property, as I mentioned, the, the winners are going to become even bigger. All the big companies will get even bigger due to consolidation. Uh, it doesn't sound that, you know, appealing, you know, you have a tanker, like a, you know, tanker that um, ships oil and gas, et cetera, versus, let's say, you know, internet company. But those right. kind of names where there's this demand supply disconnect. So nobody's building ships anymore. The fleet mm -hmm. is aging. But there's a Chinese company 
that has got a really, really good fleet, well managed, is benefiting because we're still seeing demand come through, even though we are seeing a shift towards environmental sort of ESG related areas right. and usage. So, you know, again, it's very much a stock pickers market. As we've spoken about over the past several months, that, that dividend yield and the focus on dividend yield and income does provide somewhat of a cushion to this period of volatility. And, you know, what I think to me very important towards the end of this month and early September, we are going to be seeing the second quarter numbers coming out. So it'll be very interesting to see because that was the period where we did see some, um, you know, fairly big lockdowns across the country and, and so the impact of those lockdowns. Right. It's, and it's kind of fascinating on on how all of this sort of works its way through the system. When investors are looking at EM, emerging markets, Asia is a massive part, really. I mean, it's it's almost all of EM when you when you take a look at it across the region, generally speaking, and China within that, obviously the biggest. How do you, how should investors look at sort of EM with those parameters we just mentioned, developed markets as well as sort of China on its own in terms of investability? How do you think that's being looked at at this point? Yeah. You know, when I still look at China, if we look at just say um, chip demand and supply, and memory. China consumes about 50 to 60% of global demand. And then you take into consideration that from a production perspective, a lot of that production at some point goes through China as well. So you could argue, okay, it makes sense to play that Chinese demand, but potentially through a non-Chinese listed company who has huge market share and pricing power. But that domestic demand story, whilst it's been bruised more recently, it's still there. Like the household savings rate is still over 30%. Wow. It's just that sentiment has taken, you know, it's, it's, it's just eroded a bit given the environment we find ourselves in. So again, from a policy perspective, because China does have the balance sheet to add stimulus while the rest of the world is going through a different part of the cycle, whilst free money is being taken away from households in a lot of economies around the world, China never had that, or Chinese households never had that. So they still have that savings rate. And so when you put this all together, China as a destination, and you know, we still think that the growth of the capital markets, because property is going to be less of a significant driver for the reasons we spoke about, you're going to need this asset allocation choice for investors and households. And that really is about the capital markets. And so that's why whilst it seems sort of the darkest at dawn, or the days at darkest before dawn, Kind of how it feels at the moment. But the commitment to the capital markets is there from your perspective. I mean, that, that is there. Yes, that's for sure. And even the IPO market, we're still seeing, you know, companies come to market, the whole ADR issue. So companies delisting in the US and coming back to Hong Kong and China. The geopolitical issue, I think we need to be cognizant of. But yep. again, over the years, we've spoken about this competitive nature between the US and China is going to see periods of volatility. And at times you're going to see further volatility. Uh, for example, what we've recently seen. So that has to also be on the radar, but it, it appears that China's really focusing on restoring that sentiment or consumer confidence, as well as um, managing the property situation. And then the COVID strategy, they still maintain, the government maintains that their success is about fertility rates and very low fertility rates versus right. other countries. You know, I wonder if you just speak a little bit to the you get the sense sort of reading headlines and, you know, mostly commentary in, in perhaps newspapers or online here, that there's almost a, a willingness to not acknowledge the permanence of China. 
if you know what I mean. I mean, it's. I think that's probably impossible, but I, I wonder how, how you sort of take that in or guide investors in that way. China and its capital markets are here to stay. It is currently the second largest economy, but by most people's judgments, it ultimately will be the largest economy. How how do investors make sure that they keep that in mind? Yeah, I think that, um, I guess the argument is, if you ever to own China, why wouldn't you own it now? Because valuations are basically pricing in doomsday. I think, Pamela, from a foreign investor's perspective, we can't ignore the rise of the domestic investor base. So, you know, the rise of the Chinese consumer has been a huge driver. We're going to see the rise of the Chinese investor base. So their part in terms of market dynamics and the makeup of the market is going to be really, really important. It just feels that there are lots and lots of headwinds. And, you know, I remember speaking to you earlier this year and it seemed that you know, sentiment was at the lowest point. And it just feels that we're not we're probably maybe being a bit impatient, right? So I think a lot's likely to rest in terms of a catalyst on what happens in the Congress right. and the news flow out of that. So I think until then, it's almost like we're probably treading water a bit. Uh, the, the interest rate cut today, you know, it was a tweak, but it was unexpected. So this continual focus on ensuring that the economy or economic growth or the trajectory is still in place. But, you know, again, it's right. it's a tough one given that, you know, as I said, there are those there's risks and it's not just one risk, but, you know, a couple of risks now that investors need to be mindful of. There's zero COVID policy. There's also the Congress, as you've mentioned. Once we get past November, once we get past this, is, is there an argument for just being positioned for plain old reopening? We've been talking about reopening for so many years now, so it, it feels like it's almost a vanilla topic, but it's so important when you think about people being in their apartments and not being able to get out and consume and so on. I mean, yeah. should investors think about that? Yeah. And, you know, again, the interesting um, topic about China more recently is I don't know whether you've heard of an area called uh, Sanya, which is on Hainan Island. They call it China's uh, Hawaii. I've been there and it's nice. And all the beautiful hotels are there. It's very beach-like. Um, they have some non-Chinese tourists go in as well. And uh, that was in lockdown, has started going into lockdown last week. And so you have these people on vacation who are locked in their hotel rooms, can't get home. And so if you've been locked up in Shanghai, for, let's say, for two months, and you try and get away, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost like no matter where you go, you could be at risk of a lockdown. And I think that's what's hurting sentiment and that willing. So you're absolutely right. This pent-up demand is definitely a theme which is likely to eventuate once we get past some of these, these hurdles. But Pamela, nothing goes up in a straight right line, right? Nothing is linear. Right. So I think what's important is to really ensure that the companies that we own and our conviction in these companies is maintained. Uh, but, you know, Pamela, the team just did a trip to Indonesia to see companies and that really engaging with companies, spending time with the management team, visiting their competition, visiting their vendors, visiting their R&D centers and their factories. It's, it's so important, active management and conviction that we have in the various companies we invest in. And you know, again, it's very difficult to get into China if, if you're not a Chinese national. So we're really grateful that we have our amazing team in Shanghai still maintain a lot of those um, company meetings. And hopefully in the not too distant future, we can all start going back in and resuming normal activities. Catherine, it's been so wonderful to sort of get your thoughts and get proper perspective and, and sort of conceptualize what some of the headlines mean. It, it's always helpful that you untangle some of these things for us. How, how does it come to bear sort of within the positioning of the group? I mean, how are they weighted, underweighted? How, tell us a bit about the positioning. 
Well, in these kind of environments or markets, you know, it's the stock opportunities that present themselves. And so even though it doesn't seem great from a, a macro perspective, the underlying stock opportunities are definitely there, especially from a valuations perspective. And, you know, a, a value contrarian portfolio manager that I do work with, um, you know, he's never been so overweight China as he is right now. And oh, really? Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. Like it's over 40 percent of his regional portfolio. Uh, and he was in Indonesia on that trip and found a lot of inter interesting Indonesian opportunities. But again, you know, that China angle of, and even using that example about the chips and the memory and the demand from China, I don't think we could ignore such a, a big economy and such an important market, especially when you are seeing a lot of the supportive policies, again, whether it's the growth of the capital markets that, that need to ensure domestic economic growth is there. So, you know, still long term, there are a number of opportunities. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to sort of tie it up with, with the actual position of how that works in reality. Catherine Young, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Thanks, Pamela. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.